Hey everyone, welcome to It's Kind of a Funny Story. I'm Aisha. And I'm Mariam. Each week we're going to dig into moments in history where pop culture and politics collide. So let's do it. I thought you had put Infinite Jest back there and were like, I'm never no. actually going to read it. No, no. I would never do that to the people on my Zoom calls because they might ask me about Infinite Jest. And let me tell you what I know about Infinite Jest. Tell Absolutely us. nothing. Thank you. Woo. I would, I'd be like Kristen Wiig and um, Will Ferrell in that, I think it was Golden Globes, when they clearly didn't know what what the movies were about. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The hotel full of marigold. It's so exotic. And that's me and Infinite Jest. Like the jest, in a way, it was finite, but it was also infinite, you know? <laughs> you know, when you jest that much, <laughs> no limits <laughs> to my jesting. Uh, um, I think this will be a short episode. I believe in us because we have a hard out. We do have a hard hours. stop, and which we can do a lot in two hours. So... I try, I've tried this a few times where like to get myself into my workout routine is that like I have a show that I will only let myself watch if I'm working out. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I tried to do that yesterday, but then just ended up binging the show even after my workout continued. And you're going to hate me, but I have gotten back into the Love Island thing because- Oh no. US or UK? UK, obviously. Like (laughs) I'm watching the the newest season and- um, from last like summer, after, is that the Molly May season? I don't know. I'm like three episodes in, but uh, wow. There was like so many lines that I wish I'd written down yesterday. There was one girl who was like, I'm the Beyonce of my whatever, like random little town she's from in the UK. <laughs> then there was, there's a dude who's going to become a Lord, but he doesn't want people to know he's rich. So he's telling everyone he's a farmer. Um <laughs> Oh my gosh. Love Island just uh, always sounds like a mess to me, but I always managed to, like everything I've learned about Love Island, it wasn't on purpose. It's always just people talking about it so much. And suddenly I know people's names and which sponsorships they have. Because it's just such a cultural icon. Like it's, and it's, you watch it and you just, you can't believe that, but you can, like, you can believe it because people have gone on from that show to like make a ton of money and do super well for themselves. Money, yeah. So like, I guess I understand it. It's just a very specific aesthetic that like, I personally can't imagine partaking in. However, it does look very fun. You get to just lie by the pool all the time and they give you water bottles because I think they had an incident very yeah. early on where people were With getting really too much drinking yeah yeah um, i mean it's also a summer mood like watching love island religiously like because it falls in the summer it's just like okay like after work like work ended early because it's like summer fridays or something you get you and your friends and you just watch it together and it's just like this really nice community feeling and you also feel like everyone from like the partner in your like bank to um to like the lowly intern is watching it so like when everyone is watching the same thing together and there's not much judgment it's really fun so i don't have that i'm watching it on my little phone while doing squats in my bedroom which is like really sad but 
it's really, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to start writing out the best one-liners. I'm trying to think of, so there's the Beyonce line. There's a dude pretending to be a farmer. Did you get to the uh, Brexit line? I don't know if that's. No, it hasn't happened on. yet. Well, this is like 20, this, this is like, they're calling it 2020. So I think this was the end of 2019. They recorded. Oh, this is this the winter season. one in like South this Africa? winter maybe? South Africa. Yeah. Oh, I didn't watch that one. I only yeah. I watched last summer's one, which was really fun. I should watch that one. I'm going to watch all of them. I mean. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to get there. I definitely binged one of the very first seasons last year mm-hmm. and I was hooked. I was like totally hooked. Um, we're big reality TV shows in this TV show fans in this house, meaning like me and my sisters, uh, but they are like classy Bravo, like Real Housewives Bravo's of Beverly Hills. Classy. <laughs> is the classy version? It is the classy version. I mean, if okay. we're going to compare Bravo, Real Housewives, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills to the cast of Love Island, I think if there is a spectrum of class. Do you think Kris Jenner is going to join Beverly Hills? See, this is another thing. I don't watch any Kardashian I thing, don't know. but I've heard this might be a thing. I don't think, I can't see her like putting her brand under someone else's. Uh, she doesn't want Andy like controlling. No, I don't, yeah, her. I don't think, I don't see her being part of an ensemble that is not her family. Her. Okay. Well, the rumor is they asked for too much money from E. Like they said that they like- Oh, I believe that too. Quit the show, but apparently it's too much money from E. I also feel like Kim is trying to rebrand, um, especially with her criminal justice work and like going to law school or at least studying to become a lawyer i feel like she's trying to rebrand and maybe removing the constant um scrutiny that like all the cameras bring might help and might also help with like kanye's recovery or whatever he's going through right now i was gonna say i think that like that's gonna be the other like if that's what she's trying to do kanye is gonna be the challenging part of that whole process so memes we bullied lorne michaels into setting a date for snl go us (laughs) If, I mean, if you haven't picked up on this yet, we have a magic power where we manifest things into the world based on our episode topic. So, like, let's see what Naomi comes up with next after we release this Honestly, episode. we're going to drop the episode tomorrow and she's going to be like, I'm making a book or I'm making a TV show about my life. And we'd be like, well, we have all the research here. So we could yeah. just become executive producers. We have all really the source material you. you could ever need. Hit us up. And we love you. We do. Um, we appreciate everything that you've brought to the world. But yeah, so um, just updates on things that happened in our previous episodes. So last week we talked about Lauren Michaels and SNL. And then a couple of days later, he announced the next, the first episode of SNL will be October 3rd. So they're officially starting. And then the other thing I picked up that um, kind of connects to our episode on Khan and movie making and cinema is the amount of films who've just decided, looking at Tenet's box offices and uh, box office numbers mm. and looking at like, where it's all going, they've just decided to shift all of their movies. So Wonder Woman 1984 was moved to Christmas Day, I think, which will be interesting since I don't think the movie is set on Christmas Day, but that shouldn't matter. And then Candyman, which is directed by a woman named Mia DaCosta, she actually, Mm -hmm. she shifted it to next year and she tweeted, you know, we made Candyman to be seen in theaters, not just for the spectacle, but because the film is about community and stories, how they shape each other and how they shape us. It's, It's about a collective experience. So she's talking about that collective experience of, of cinema, capital C cinema. And, you know, it kind of shows that like a lot of filmmakers are still thinking that like sc- streaming is not enough. Like watching it on your phone or laptop right. is not enough. And they would rather wait for the situation to settle itself or, you know, for us to get a vaccine before they put their films out there, which 
is interesting. I want to see Candyman on, on the big screen. Even I I'm really want to see Candyman. Yeah. I, do you think that if they, like, if Tenet had made more money or, you know, yeah. Do you think if the financial gain had been there, they would have been like, actually, we think that this could be a great, they would have told a completely different story. Do you think there is like genuine artistic decision? I think for the studios, this? I think studios would have, if, if Tenet had made, you know, it's reported that it made $20 million its first week, but actually apparently it's closer to $11 million. They've like fudged the numbers a little okay. bit. So like, I think if studios saw like, cause I think Nolan's last films made like 50 to $60 million opening weekend. So I think if, if he had seen that same number, maybe some studios would have pushed for Wonder Woman 1984 because that's like a superhero movie kind of in the same genre or same groups of same demographic that are going to see it. Um, but I think for the filmmakers, someone like Nia, the way she's talking about her film, you know, I can see them really, really wanting to harness the power of like the whole community going to see it. You know, it's, yeah. it's executive produced by Jordan Peele. And you remember going to see Get Out in cinemas and how like it was packed and like everyone was jumping at certain points. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's the reason for the decision. So, and I think like old school slasher films were like this very communal experience, like, you know, in the seventies and eighties where yeah, like you said with Get Out, but even more so I think back then where you would have these crowds that would like all jump together. It's like a, it's like an American kind yeah, of it's definitely tradition, communal. like cinematic tradition, I think, like going to see a scary movie in a theater and everyone experiencing it together. So like, I do buy that. I do think that, I do, I mean, I, I also do think that if there had been enough financial reason to release it now, they would have done it. But I think that Candyman will no doubt be a better experience on the big screen. Exactly. One day. We'll see. Or it. even Psycho. I think at the beginning of Psycho, Hitchcock like asked moviegoers not to share like the big mm-hmm. twist. And yeah. they all left the cinema like having this amazing scary experience and people actually kept to it and didn't share the twist for a long time. And that's that's really cool. And it would be Psycho if it had come out on streaming, which has been ruined. Like it everyone would have been a would different have screenshot. It would have been a totally different experience. The yeah. Memes. Think of the memes though. Ugh, the memes would have yeah, been. Yeah, if Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> lived in twenty twenty. He would have honestly been the king of memes. I think he would have gotten in on the joke. I really do. He would, he would so kind fed of be up like, with everybody. He'd kind of be like a Ryan Murphy figure where he would like play yeah. into the memes a little bit and like cast like actresses and these like oh, older women maybe just for the memes because he knows that the tweens and the teens and the TikTokers are going to do something with it. <laughs> wow, that was maybe one of your most brilliant insights ever that Hitchcock would be ryan murphy today i think maybe ryan murphy is the reincarnation of alps no don't do that to hitchcock i love ryan murphy but separate spheres one of them i mean like they're very they're very separate like calibers but i could see like i won't say evolution i might say devolution even though i like also very much love ryan murphy and love his signature touch on everything he does Mm -hmm. but i do i could see i could see it i could see alfred hitchcock's like being adapting to he's like well this is i guess where humanity went and became ryan murphy now you and i just <laughs> need to pitch this movie ryan and alfred or murphy and hitchcock it would be like julia and julia meets. it'll be julia and julia and meets benjamin <laughs> button somehow and we like find let's keep what's well, off mic off mic off mic yeah yeah keep we'll it talk about this. we got it um and then the last movie thing is about the oscar of uh, the academy um, released their diversity requirements this yeah. week, which 
caused a splash. It was like, we got, you and I both got a lot of, people are actually listening to this podcast because people texted us being like, what are your thoughts? What given your latest mean? episode? A lot of you have been asking us what we think about the Oscars new diversity requirement. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you are saying, just out there, um, all 12 of you. Uh, yeah, so just to break it down, because it's really a little complicated, but essentially there are now four standards that you can meet if you want to uh, submit your movie for an Oscar. And you only need to meet two standards out of the four. And the one that drew everyone's attention was standard A, which basically stated that like, to satisfy standard, to satisfy standard A, the film needs to have at least one actor from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group in a significant role. Um, and the story must center on women, LGBTQ people, or a racial or ethnic group, or the disabled. And three, at least 30% of the cast must be actors from at least two of those underrepresentative categories. And at first, you're, like people were like, oh, that means Saving Private Ryan is over. What about Schindler's List? Yeah. This is like crazy. But honestly, like La La Land um, meets all those requirements. It's not a hard requirement. John Legend was in La La Land that ticks off like um, one or two of those. And then it's also- That's crazy that La La Land meets the criteria. La La Land meets the criteria. It's very hard not to meet that criteria because also as um, Mark Harris, he's a writer, he's an author. I think he's married to Tony Kushner, who's the- uh, the man that wrote Angels in America, and like, they're this mm. great theater power couple. And Mark Harris is Jewish, and he spoke about how, like, what happens when a film decides to count um, Jewish people as the um, underrepresented group. Right. What does that mean? Like, you know, about race and ethnicity, and that could get so many people into a lot of trouble, and it could yeah. also mean all sorts of things. So it's it's a messy way to approach it. And then also, so I mentioned that you only need to clear two standards out of four. There, a C and D, the standard C and D are also really easy to meet because it's like the film's distributor or financing company must have at least two interns from an underrepresented group. So it just means that like, yeah, some big company just needs to make like a small internship program, maybe not pay them and yeah. just have a woman in it. <laughs> and there are, there are like a lot of like, like, diversity and entertainment like internship programs that have popped up like that exists and that's not that that's not a great thing and i'm glad we do that but to your point and to many people who once they got past the excitement of like yes we're like putting on paper that people have to do things differently it doesn't actually change that much which is frustrating yeah, it it doesn't and um it also actually skews towards movies that are produced by studios so like a big right. studio can make up this internship program, but like if you're a small indie, you know, you got the money pulled in from like your family and you just worked really hard in this small place in Idaho and you don't have an internship program, but your story is about people from a certain town and maybe they, like there's no one, not many people from an underrepresented group there. You can see how like it suddenly limits storytelling in a way. I'm not mm -hmm. advocating against diversity. I think it's good that this independent film has to go out and look for underrepresented groups in Idaho, but it it sucks that like a huge studio movie can just easily tick it off with like, oh, we have this summer internship for women yeah. or, um, and, and it's just unfair. And then the last thing I wanted to point out is that the criteria are based on um, like the BAFTAs, so the British like, um, mm -hmm. Film Institute essentially, they had, they, they implemented these diversity criteria or something similar a couple of years ago. And it's there, it's been a constant complaint by um, British actors of color that like it hasn't worked. 
like yeah. the BAFTA nominations this year, like when you have performances like Cynthia Erivo's and Harriet, I didn't watch Harriet, but I heard she's good. Um, you have JLo's, you have Aquafina, you have Lupita, but for some reason they nominated Margot Robbie twice, Scarlett Johansson twice, and then Saoirse Ronan, who deserved that nomination in my opinion. But oh yeah, like it's, if we're looking ahead, like the BAFTAs imp implemented this a couple of years ago, and we're looking at what their nominations look a couple of years after the implementation, you're kind of like, oh, what does this actually change? I'm trying to figure out what, because on face value, these criteria seem great, right? Like you said, but they clearly don't work. So what's, what, what is that disconnect? Do you think that it's not accounting for the like complexity or like the act because like significant role feels vague to me um, yes I think that's like a big piece like how much of a storyline how much do you think it's more about how much diet like should we be measuring in how much dialogue or how much screen time do we measure it in like because I, I can't help but feel like the metrics are wrong it's also something that's very hard to like to quantify um, yeah, to quantify in metrics. I think what this year has kind of taught us is that if you really are committed to this work, you have to, to like anti-racism and inclusion and diversity, you have to kind of move with intention. It has to be in every step of your work. Yeah. So these metrics, like sometimes just function as like a tick box. Like you've, yeah. you've read the diversity statement and your company has like put a black box and, and that's enough, but you really have to ask, okay, who's writing the story? Who's producing the story? You know, you can have a cast full of um, you can have a cast full of black, uh, of black people or people of color and you can still feel like underrepresented. On the other end of the world, in the inter entertainment space, something very bizarre is going on. Um, so we talked about Bollywood, whatever, two episodes ago? I've lost track already. I've become one of those people like when podcasters like, I can't remember what I said like last episode. I understand now. I'm like, I don't remember what I said last episode. But we did our uh, Bollywood episode and we didn't touch on, we have touched on colorism, obviously through Afrofuturism and other things. India has a major, major colorism issue. We always have. There is a song that came out recently called Beyonce Shadmajagi, which this is, it's so difficult to translate, but what it essentially translates to is Beyonce will feel shame or embarrassed. Um, and it comes from this movie, Kali Pili. Um, and the line is, which translates to Beyonce will feel insecure, ashamed, embarrassed. Like again, that word is a little difficult to translate exactly after seeing you, oh fair one. And even au fair one, Goria, is like a tough one to translate because a lot of people use it like the word sweetie or my dear but mm -hmm. gori means fair goria gori means fair so it means so you mean like white or fair or yeah, light light like light skinned like okay. so basically the literal translation is beyonce will feel ashamed after seeing you oh fair one that is the <laughs> literal translation i love so, that they think beyonce will care <laughs> this is the thing we all know that beyonce has much bigger fish to fry could give to whatever is about this but, and, and the other thing is, you know, India for a long time has had, like I said, a colorism problem and a history of problematic song lyrics. Mm -hmm. It's 2020 though. And I will say Indian Twitter has like slapped back hard being like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Really? Like, this is what we're doing right now. Like, this is what, this is where we're at. 
was it a direct response to brown skin girl her her song like celebrating so, like dark skin woman or just it was just general so this is so this is what the uh director of the movie says i'm going to quote him so quote first without any hesitation or excuses we want to apologize to anyone offended we assure you that the lyric in question was never intended racially in fact the term godia has been so often and traditionally used in indian songs to address a girl it didn't occur to any of us to interpret it in the literal manner also, the comparison with Beyonce simply meant to be a street smart guy, a flattering girl who's trying to impress that her dancing performance is worth comparing to even Beyonce. So basically, and, and the lyricist goes on and says, you know, and Godia, like I mentioned, is often used as a synonym for girl. But again, you can't, you can't call a girl Godia. You can't compare her to, first of all, the attempt to p- compare anyone to Beyonce is just, for any reason, silly and just, just dumb. Stop it. Um, I know Bollywood is over the top, but that is crossing a line. Um, Thank you for understanding. Yeah, I just like what? That's who you. That's who you chose. Like the ultimate icon of all time. Like what? Well, I mean, what's funny is you know I have like a weekly search of Beyonce just like in my own spare time and sure. I don't, you know, I don't understand Hindi, but I picked up on this controversy. So maybe they were trying to get like SEO, like they were just trying to optimize. Just attention. I mean, they got they got the views. They got two million views on uh, YouTube and three hundred thousand dislikes, which is <laughs> in the YouTube verse real bad. Um, so I think that that's been fascinating to watch, not only because it was so literally tone deaf, um, but I think what we is what is really cool to see is how strongly Twitter is like this is ridiculous. It's like, why are we still doing this? And to the point where, you know, the director and the public, like the lyricist and everybody had to come out and apologize and attempt to explain themselves. But I think that, you know, in a time when people are trying to like pull back on fairness creams and all this kind of stuff in India, which really is a name only, I'm not convinced we're going to see the end of like whiteness creams in India. It's just okay. such a bad artistic choice. And I'm sure they wrote it at some other point, but also maybe not because I've heard Bollywood songs get written really fast. So I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. But that was, that's been a really crazy, trippy thing to happen in the last week or so. This week, we are talking about something else entirely. Thank you to all of us, all of us, all of you. All, of, all you. of us. Aisha, thank you to you and us, you and me. Thank you to just us, us people. We Thank you to it. our audience um, <laughs> for voting for the topic of this episode or the focus of this episode. It's going to be about Naomi Campbell, who has been an icon for decades. Yes. We want to talk about her rise to fame, her legacy as a supermodel. As an icon, you know, she obviously has this very complicated legacy, which we'll dig into. But we want to also talk about her being a special, uh, being a witness at the special court for Sierra Leone, which is such a just such a strange it's an thing. interesting story it's one it's for the ages story. it is um and it, it just perfectly aligns with all the things we care about which is naomi campbell and uh the ultimate divas of the world appearing at the hague to speak on the crimes of a terrible man and diamonds um, and diamonds. international law aisha loves her international law a little bit of international law there's also a little bit of like diamonds and drug law that we can get into, but uh, we'll start uh, after the break.
And we're back. Uh, so we're going to start by talking about Naomi Campbell. Obviously, that's what we said we were going to do. So just some background on her. You've probably heard her name. She is a supermodel. She's considered one of the first supermodels, which we'll talk about yes. uh, she, how she got that reputation. Yes. She is also the first Black woman to appear on the cover of French Vogue, which was a really big deal. Uh, Business of Fashion describes her as being the only Black member of that elite group of models directly responsible for the term supermodel. And she's also very infamous for being incredibly difficult to work with. She has had some very public and well-publicized violent outbursts, but her legacy is very complex because she's also done some incredible advocacy work throughout her career. She's not just a responsive advocate. She's very much made that part of how she operates from the beginning of her career, which is very impressive. And mm -hmm. I think the other lens that we can kind of examine her legacy through is how much of that legacy is the stereotype of the angry black woman kind of coming in to this, right? So yeah, kind of from our like first only different episode as well. When yeah. you think about like the press and the way they talk about black women, especially in the UK, you can like, you know, when you think about the way Meghan Markle has spoken about, you can sort of see yeah. patterns emerging about things Naomi said or did that seem, you know, normal, but are kind of taken out of context and considered to be her being super loud and angry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, so she was born in South London in 1970. She was born to a Jamaican born dancer and to a man she actually, I think never met in her life. Uh, he abandoned her, um, her mother when she was four months pregnant with Naomi, uh, but she does have some Chinese heritage from her paternal side. So some of her really distinct features, I think, kind of come from that. But she spent her early years in Rome with her mother while she was being a modern dancer, and she ended up studying ballet at the Italia Conti Academy of Theater Arts. And honestly, no matter what Naomi Campbell was going to do in her life, she was destined for stardom. Like she was amazing on the stage. She had amazing presence. Her mother was an artist. So I think that you can kind of see that from an early age. Yeah. I'm also going to refer to her as Naomi through this entire episode. Oh, dude, not... she's the only okay. one. Which other Naomi is there? Like from 90210? Is there oh another my... Naomi? There, it, I mean, wow, I what a her. deep cut. <laughs> I was watching the OC last night and she showed up in like towards the end of the season three. And I was like, oh my God, Naomi from 90210? I'm so impressed, Aisha. Well done. I was going to say like- small body. I have a student with that name. Like, that's the only other name we know. Anyways, so she spent, <laughs> so when she was seven, uh, so 1978, she made her first public appearance in a music video for Bob Marley, uh, Is This Love? She ended up uh, signing with the Synchro Model Agency at age 15 when she was discovered window shopping in Covent Gardens. I have window shopped in Covent Gardens. I have yet to be discovered by a modeling agency. You need to let's, go back. You need to go yeah, back. Yeah, I gotta go back. Uh, there's nothing interesting in Covent Gardens, but if it gets me signed, I'm there. Um, and her career took off very quickly. She, before she even hit 16, she was in the cover of British L, And uh, that's very impressive. She's walked for Versace, Alaya, Mizrahi, like all the big names of the time. And she, by the late 1980s, so, you know, we're about 10 years into her career, not even, we're less than 10 years into, we're a couple of years into her career. It was Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Linda uh, Evangelista. They became known as the Trinity. Uh, they're the ultimate mm -hmm. supermodels of the time and the most recognizable in-demand models of their generation. And, you know, when she talks about those women, it's really interesting because obviously being a Black supermodel did not, was not easy for her. Like, even though she made, it's one of those interesting things where you make it to the elite 
but that does not mean people are not racist towards you. So Christy and Linda used to tell, she, they actually told Dolce and Cabana once, if you don't use Naomi, you won't get us. Like they very much had her back. They were some of those original, like true anti-racist allies, yeah, allies, yeah. Uh, which I think is really impressive. And in fact, one of the reasons she also ended up on the cover of French Vogue is Yves Saint Laurent threatened to withdraw his advertising from the magazine if they continue to refuse to put black models on its cover. And that was 1988. That was very recent. That is like 32 years ago, everyone. That is, this is where we're at. So I just thought that was really interesting in that she gives a lot of credit to the people in her life. She calls them her angels and her armor and her guardians of people around her who really helped advocate for her. And she, you know, to use literally her own phrase was a bad bitch. That's how she describes herself. And she said that was her armor. So, because the other thing that was going on is she definitely came to fame at a time when predatory men were having a great moment. Um, so great John moment. Casablanca's, they were having their moment. They were They're living their, their best moment. life. Yeah. Uh, which, no to the detriment To the detriment of everybody else, uh, these men were living their best lives. So John Casablancas, who is the founder of Elite Model Management at the time and was very active at the time, he was known for the one who signed the quote supers uh, and he was very notorious for sleeping with his teenage models and he moved in the Epstein-Donald Trump friend circle uh, at that time. Okay, okay. She says she never saw any of that or experienced any of that because she had this kind of armor of her own kind of personality and then also these amazing uh, allies around her, but you know, it was a very toxic time clearly to be coming up in this business. And I do wonder if that plays into a lot of why she became so tough and why she was so difficult. It was just, it seems like a really toxic place to have been, despite having obviously these amazing friends by her side. So it was just an interesting kind of thought that I, that I had because I'm an interesting person, I guess. I don't know. So... <laughs> So she really killed it for many, many years. Like there was that famous fall of Vivian at, uh, when she was wearing Vivian Westwood's like one foot high platform she, yeah, shoes. Yeah, she fell. It, it reminded me of that Sex and the City episode where Carrie falls. She thinks she can be a model for a day and she just like face plants. Like, yeah, it's except for, like, well, whenever I see that like clip of Naomi falling, like everything hurts. I just like feel my joints hurt watching that. Ugh. But you know, those shoes have actually been displayed at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. I don't know if you've ever seen them, Aisha. Oh, cool. See those. When, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll check uh, them out. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you're interested. But eventually, Elite Model Management did fire her in 1993, which was obviously the huge news. And Ford Models, like, signed her literally the next day. So she was fine. But the same John Casablanca, as I mentioned earlier, said that, uh, quote, she was manipulative, scheming, rude, and impossible, and that there was just no excuse for the level of uh, abuse that the staff took from her. Her version, even till like an interview I saw she did last year, said that she left on her own terms and uh, that she did not get the boot, which is what John said. And her own mother, interestingly enough, was, I mean, it makes sense that the mother would defend her daughter, but says mm -hmm. Naomi was a victim of racism and she's no angel, but she's professional. And I think she would be treated differently if she were white. Um, so she went on to do it's a bunch of other, true. yeah, it's, and so this is the thing is that she, you know, had these violent outbursts. She has been convicted of assault on four occasions and she has thrown things and hit people and kicked people and whatever, but people are clearly really loyal to her. Even Nelson Mandela, who we'll talk about later, 
he considered her like a like an honorary granddaughter and yeah they were close or they were friendly. very very close yeah and you know people certainly did call her a petulant diva and a bully but she she actually despite those occasional outbursts really held her own and was like you know what i'm not perfect i'm working on i'm a work in progress like i shouldn't have done that but this is who i am she also to connecting it to one of our earlier episodes they this interview that i read last year that she did with the guardian asks her about Meghan Markle, who she at that point was like, I have never met her, don't really plan on meeting her, but said, I am really glad she's defending herself against the British press because they were sort of talking around this issue of uh, Black people in British media are treated really poorly. And she felt she had been victim of that same thing. So definitely it's, it's fascinating. And I think the last thing I'll say though is she also has this legacy we don't talk a lot about, which is her role as a advocate. So, you know, her mom mentions very, you know, straight up, she's like, this is racism. My daughter was treated differently because she's a black supermodel. Naomi Campbell spoke up herself throughout her entire career. So in 1991, she was very vocal about not making as much as her white counterparts, uh, was very open about racial bias in the industry. In 97, she said straight up, quote, there is prejudice. It is a problem and I can't go along anymore with brushing it under the carpet. This business is about selling and blonde and blue-eyed girls are what sells. So she's gone on to found uh, her own organization called Fashion for Relief in 2005 and has raised money for you know millions and millions of pounds for everybody from Hurricane Katrina victims to uh, the Mumbai terrorist attack victims. And she has gone on to you know work with other black models to call out high-profile designers who don't use models of color. So, you know, all that to say, there's just like a lot going on with Naomi Campbell. She comes from this really fascinating background. She has this, you know, she's breaking barriers. She is certainly, I, I, my personal opinion is I do believe that she was difficult to work with, but I believe that the angry black woman stereotype and the racism of that time have focused on that part of her legacy over all of the amazing advocacy work that she's done and focusing on the sides of her that clearly keep people like Nelson Mandela close. So that's sort of my, you know, takeaway from that. But uh, Aisha, what I, are what are your thoughts on Naomi Campbell? I'm very curious. Like, what are what are your? Do you have a favorite Naomi I, moment? <laughs> I love her. I love her. Um, I'm not much of a fashion person at all. I never have been, but I love her because of kind of the things you've mentioned before about how like she carries herself and you know she really believes in what she believes and how she definitely wears a suit of armor over her to protect her and that's because of her life experiences and she's learned from them and she's sort of um uh an uh, she's a an inspiration to many young black models as well like, there's so many people who look up to her like you know beyonce name dropped her in a song like this year like she's yeah just always doing cool stuff and always gonna be relevant I have a couple of favorite Naomi moments. I think one of my favorites for sure is the plane cleaning. I know we, we spoke about her YouTube show, how she has like this YouTube channel now where she's yeah. kind of showing people how she lives her life. And one of the more viral ones, and this happened I think last year. So before coronavirus was a thing where she showed us her plane routine, how she like Oh my God, cleans. I remember when that happened. It was so funny, but also felt so good to me. I was like, yeah, this is what we all should be doing. We all should be wiping down the whole seat, putting something underneath us so we don't touch anything. Like, And um, I just love that that's just like very real Naomi. And then the other area of my life that I've encountered Naomi a lot, this is going to go into a little like UK media law 
um, segment here is about the right to privacy in the UK. So the right to privacy is mostly governed by the European Convention on Human Rights, the ECHR. That's not connected to the EU. Important to know. It's a real huge issue with lawyers when people think they're the same thing. But anyway, okay. so the ECHR was incorporated into the UK law um, uh, by the Human Rights Act, and this came in, into force in the year 2000. Prior to the Human Rights Act, like privacy was really hard to govern and to um, settle cases on. It was governed by the tort of breach of confidence, and it was just kind of messy for people who consider themselves victims when it came to privacy. So the Human Rights Act incorporated Article 8 of the ECHR into law, and that extended this principle of like protecting private information, not just confidential information. Like you as a person can have, are entitled to privacy. It's, it's amazing. So it wasn't until uh, Naomi Campbell's case, which is called Campbell and Mirror Group Newspapers Limited, which is actually run by Piers Morgan right. at the time, it's a horrible man, uh, oh. in 2004, where basically the House of Lords, um, which is like the Supreme Court in the UK at the time, declared that like claimants like Naomi and other stars can bring like a misuse of private information action if they show that they have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And right. that was huge for like yeah. defamation and privacy and all sorts of things. And that's why the law is so much stronger in the UK than in the US. Like a lot of US stars try and bring their cases in the UK because like it's enshrined in the law that you are entitled to private information instead of just like any newspaper can say stuff about you and your new boyfriend. With Naomi, it was because her case involved uh, visits to Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah. And she had claimed apparently in the press that she wasn't a drug user and like never had been and doesn't want to touch the stuff. But the mayor had taken pictures of her outside of the um, NA meeting and they wanted to point out her, quote, hypocrisy. And the court ruled that like, Yes, like technically the, the mirror and newspapers can share stuff about her hypocrisy, but her treatment is a private matter. And it's right. really, really bad that you would go into someone's personal life like that and try and show um, how she's being treated. It's private information. So like Naomi's case basically laid the groundwork for this like immense and intense area of privacy law that like, you know, you really have to like investigate. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And it also kind of, it led to this like push and pull because between a person's right to privacy and the media's right to freedom of expression. It's like, there's like a whole list of cases. What the joy find, on your face as you describe, <laughs> as you talk about media laws. This isn't boring to anyone else. This is really fascinating to me because I had to learn all these cases last year and it was intense. But what I find most interesting, honestly, is that, so this hypocrisy thing, it kept coming up in cases. It kept being that um, newspapers and tabloids wanted to show that a footballer or a model or, you know, some kind of celebrity was being a hypocrite and Mm -hmm. was drinking too much or, you know, was having an affair. And of course, example by example, I noticed the skin color of everyone in these cases. And Mm. I was like looking around the room, like, can no one else notice that like all the footballers who are involved in these cases are all black and it's Naomi Campbell. And it's about like tabloids thinking they have a right to intrusion in celebrities' lives. And also that celebrities owe like a certain level of decorum. It was so interesting who was being policed in all these cases. One of the more famous one had to do with a celebrity who was involved in a threesome that was an affair. And it was, the name was blocked for a while, but we figured out who it was. And that person was also a homosexual um, singer. And again, it was like this weird policing of certain kinds of celebrities' rights that I find fascinating and kind of plays into what you were saying about how Naomi knows that she's not playing a fair game, you know? 
that like things might have been different if it was one of her white counterparts entering Narcotics Anonymous. And yeah. so it's, you know, it, it's truly interesting. And I'm glad that her case made all these waves, but it sucks that it had to be her. And I guess my final, oh wait, do you want to say something? No, no, I'm just saying it does, it does really suck. And I think it just keeps tying to the same thing of like, just because Naomi quote unquote made it, didn't mean she didn't encounter racism. Like we can't, assume, like it's when people said we're in a post-racial America because Barack Obama was president. It's like, no, no. Oh my God. No, no. no, no. There's still racism. <laughs> no. Don't worry. No, no, no. Don't, don't you worry. It's still there. It's still fine. But uh, please, sorry. Um, what was your last thought here? Well, no, I was just going to say my final iconic moment was her appearance at the special court for Sierra Leone. Yes. Which we chose as the focus of today's episode. So we will she get to that. She considered it a real uh, inconvenience, but we're so glad she did it because it's, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> so we'll get back to that after the break. Okay, welcome back, everyone. So like we mentioned, we're going to talk about Naomi's appearance at the special court for Sierra Leone. Before we get into that, we need to give some background on Sierra Leone. So it's a country located in West Africa next to Liberia and Guinea. It's right by the Atlantic Ocean, so it's a huge port country. It's actually a home for repatriated former slaves who, you know, in the late 18th century, early 19th century, were freed by the British Royal Navy who were patrolling the oceans, making sure that slavery mm-hmm. uh, uh, wasn't happening anymore because the, the British had abolished slavery at the time. So a lot of Nigerians are told the story of a man named Samuel Ajayi Crowther, who was a linguist and an Anglican bishop. He was, um, he was captured by slave traders when he was like nine years old in Nigeria, and he was put on a, uh, on a ship um, headed to the Americas, but the ship was stopped by the British Navy, and he was freed and, and sent to Freetown, which is the capital of Sierra Leone. So um, Sierra Leone was kind of colonized by these freed slaves that were arriving from England and all these uh, ports. And they create, they um, established it in partnership with the English. Right. So the colony and protectorate was a British colonial administration from 1808 to independence in 1961. And get this, the motto of the colony was Auspice Britannia Liber, which means free under the protection of Britain, which Oh my Those God. words together. I don't know if that works. But anyway, the country gained independence in 1961 and it became a republic in 1971. The country also has a huge diamond and mining industry. I know you've watched Blood Diamond, the movie with Leo. So I started it again yesterday in preparation oh of this episode. I forgot it's a two and a half hour movie. And I also <laughs> started it at like 10 p.m. because I suddenly remembered, oh, I was going to watch Blood Diamond. And then I got about 40 minutes into it and fell asleep. So I feel like this is going to be over the span of this several days. This is me days. and most Leo DiCaprio movies, I'm going to be honest. I forgot he also plays like a, Sa- a South African and he, oh, he like, talks accent. like that. And it's just, oh, a lot. No. it's just a lot. I mean, yeah. I've never watched it because I look at it and I know exactly who the movie is made for. And it is not me. So yeah. I, I thought it. it I, it's very stressful. It was a very stressful movie, to, especially the beginning. It's, yeah, I forgot it. Like, so here's what happened. I started it. I was about, you know, 30 minutes in was getting really tired and feeling really anxious from watching the movie. So then I switched to Pride and Prejudice, the Colin Good Firth choice. version. Oh, interesting. 1995. Like a particular episode? 
I was on episode four. So I went back to episode four, was still feeling stressed. So then I devolved further and finished my Love Island episode. So I went from (laughs) (laughs) Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond to Love Island. Yes. With a bit of Colin Firth in the middle. That's that's going to be the name of my biography, just so you know. No, please don't. Please don't. Yeah. I'm going to stop you from that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sierra Leone. So if you've watched Blood Diamond, that's set in Sierra Leone during the Civil War. Also, you know... Kanye has that song, Diamonds from Sierra Leone. It's a great, great song. Um, So in 1935, one of the largest diamond companies, De Beers, took complete control over the diamond industry in Sierra Leone and like basically entered into a 99-year contract, which would technically end in 2034. It's crazy. And there were also like Lebanese traders in the market who soon discovered that they could make profits by smuggling diamonds out of the country. So even from the start of the like mining, the, the diamond industry in Sierra Leone, like you can tell that like Sierra Leoneans weren't even part of the discussion and weren't part, didn't have the power to actually, you know, participate in any of the profits from the diamond mining. So that also creates a really complex legacy and illicit diamond trading has continued to play a huge part in Sierra Leone history. The Eastern and Southern parts of the country um, are rich in diamonds. And so that's where the power is always contested. Got it. Yes. And that leads us to, you know, the civil war, it's an armed conflict that began in March of 1991 when the Revolutionary United Front under Fode Sanko, with the support of Liberian le- leader Charles Taylor and his group, the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, attempted to overthrow the government of the Sierra Leonean president, Joseph Moma. Those are a lot of names at you, but essentially just to understand that like the leader of a revolutionary group with the support of like another rebel leader from Liberia, whose name was Charles Taylor, got together and decided we're going to overthrow the legitimate government of Sierra Leone. And that's what happened. So in the first year, the Revolutionary United Front took control of the diamond-rich territories in eastern and southern Sierra Leone, and there was so much death, Miriam. At the end of the war, like more than 50,000 were dead and half a million people displaced, which is, you know, a small number when you think about like the internal displacement in like somewhere like Syria, but then you remember that Sierra Leone is a country of four million people. So that's a quarter of their people displaced. Um, both the government and the RUF were funded by blood diamonds. They were called this because they were mined with slave labor and they were used to finance the insurgency. And with the Sierra Leonean civil war, you know, if you ever get really into research on it, um, it's also important to talk about how rape was used as a weapon of war. Mm-hmm. In the Civil war, like rape, sexual slavery, forced marriages, they were all used during the conflict. And in fact, the war is used as kind of a case study when you think about when you're studying rape as a tool of genocide. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really important to that, um, to that field of study. It remind there was a scene in Blood Diamond, like as far as I got in it last night, but it really, it's like playing in my head over and over as you talk where, so the, you know, the main character is um, taken from his village and is mining these diamonds. And one of the RUF leaders is kind of circling and like keeping an eye on everybody. And it's this very stark, like, slave master slave kind of imagery although everyone is african and he in fact says he's like see look we've like ruf has liberated you there's i see no slaves before me when clearly there's a slave labor being yeah they've enslaved diamonds they've enslaved these people so it's just like this it was just such a jarring image so when you talk about uh you know the fact that there it was a genocide and that there was the the word slavery is not wrong here and how it was uh, used to, you know, get these diamonds. It's, it's just, yeah, that's the scene that played in my head. 
And the term blood diamond actually plays a really important function of tying the people who are in charge of the insurgency to the slave labor itself. Because yes. there's a world where you'd be like, listen, we needed to feed our soldiers. We had all these things going on and there just happened to be diamonds in our country. And we use that to fund our insurgency. But by calling it a blood diamond, you are, you are making that tie. You're making the implicit explicit. You are pointing to people like Charles Taylor as the perpetrators of the slavery and the people who caused this chaos in Sierra Leone. So um, eventually, uh, during the Civil War, multiple countries intervened, including Nigeria. That's a part of our military history. And um, in 1995, the Sierra Leonean government even hired a mercenary group from South Africa to defeat the RUF. Like, imagine the government being like, we're going to hire outside help to defeat the RUF. But thank... Uh, I want to say thankfully because it's war, but like with the help of UN forces, British troops and Guinean air support, so uh, air support from the country of Guinea, yep. the Sierra Leonean government finally defeated the RUF and took control of Freetown. And in January 2002, the new president declared the civil war officially over. Additionally, the special court for Sierra Leone was set up. It was a judicial body set up by the government and the UN to prosecute people who bear the greatest responsibility for serious violations of international humanitarian law and Sierra Leonean law. It um, committed in Sierra Leone after November 1996, which is interesting. Mm. Yep. Um, so in the end, the, the special court for Sierra Leone took place and it was dissolved in 2013. So they didn't examine anything that happened before November 1996, technically? Like, you couldn't be held accountable for that? Technically, no. Interesting. All right, well, jumping from that, what? how does Naomi Campbell fit into this terrible <laughs> yeah. story? And this whole history think, of Sierra Leone. This whole Where does Naomi come through? Leone? Yeah, so it's super, it's fascinating. So in, in 1997, so to your point, Aisha, like, they were looking at, crimes committed from 1996 onwards. So 1997, uh, Nelson Mandela has been newly, newly freed. Like I mentioned, he and uh, Naomi Campbell were extremely close. He's hosting a charity dinner at his house in Pretoria, South Africa. And uh, Mia Farrow is there, Imran Khan is there, Quincy Jones, like quite a crew, uh, including Charles Taylor, the aforementioned rebel leader. A Liberian leader, yeah. Yep, and Naomi Campbell. So Charles Taylor uh, was actually the president of Liberia at that time and would, of course, later be accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity and, uh, due to his involvement in the uh, Sierra Leone Civil War. But, you know, Naomi Campbell claims she did not know any of this, uh, that she did not know any about, anything about his background when she attended this dinner. And so we've set the scene, 1997, everyone's having dinner. There is... Uh, jumping to 2010 in August, uh, Naomi Campbell makes this highly publicized appearance at a war crimes trial at The Hague against Charles Taylor and is asked to give evidence on a quote blood diamond she allegedly re received from Taylor at that same dinner. So 1997, the, there is sort of two versions there's, of the story. Yeah, there's different, there's different stories There's different here. accounts. So yes. Naomi's version is that she attended this dinner that she there was allegedly some fl like light flirting that went on naomi went back to her room and some men showed up at her door and handed her five or six quote dirty looking stones but she had no idea that who, like who had sent these they were uncut diamonds and who she said that she had no idea who sent them until she went to brunch the next day 
uh, where Mia Farrow was there and a few others, and they were the ones who told her, oh, it must have been Charles Taylor who gave it to you. That is Naomi's version. She had no idea. Mia Farrow and uh, Campbell's former agent, Carol White, they say that's not how it went down. So they say that Carol White says that she heard Charles Taylor actually say to Naomi Campbell at that dinner that he will be sending her stones. She waited up with Naomi Campbell um, that night for these guys to arrive. She says that Naomi Campbell was like in contact with the men who were supposed to make the delivery, that she was really excited, that she had said that they were coming from Charles Taylor. Uh, so that was sort of Carol White's version. And Mia Farrow backs it up. She said that at the brunch the next day that she that Naomi Campbell clearly knew where they had come from and told her where they had come from. But it's also worth noting, like Mia Farrow speaks really highly of Naomi Campbell at the trial. It's not like she's trying to, she's not trying to like tear get her, her down. in trouble. I, I do yeah. love that. Like Ronan Farrow's mother has been doing this for years though. Like he thinks that he, yes. he came up with this, but Mia Farrow has been snitching on crimes against humanity for a long time. For, it's, it's her brand. Um, it's her brand. <laughs> So she, she says, quote, she was very maternal, meaning Naomi Campbell, not only with my kids, but with the models. Uh, and she said she's like, she said that uh, Naomi Campbell even gave her daughter a dress once and that she's absolutely oh. great. So she really does love Naomi, but she says it was an unforgettable moment. She is sure that Naomi knew. So why does this matter, right? Like, why do we care that Naomi Campbell maybe got uncut diamonds from this man at a, at a dinner party? And I think that it ties because they're basically trying to track the movement of these diamonds and whether or not he carried diamonds with, with him wherever with he him went. to South Africa, yes. Yeah, to do uh, basically an arms deal. So if they could prove he carried diamonds with him, which he claims he never did, then you could make that case uh, much stronger. So that was, they didn't bring her in just for the, for the sake of it. Because at first I was like, why did they call her? I don't understand why she's relevant to the war crimes. But that is why, because they wanted to see, like, was he using it as currency, traveling around with it in order to make deals in South Africa. That, um, and in fact, that they were trying to prove that he was specifically on an arms buying deal in South Africa um, and that the diamonds were there for payment. So, you know, she did not want to go testify. She <laughs> called it a huge really inconvenience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's like, I got other things to do. Why she am I here? She up in her, like, lawsuit at the trial, like, looking like, oh, if I have to do this, at least I'll show up and... Nice at least clothes. I'll look good um, yeah. as if she was not, as if there was any other option, like as if she was not going to show up looking good. So that was, that's Naomi Campbell at the Hague. It's quite a tale. It's, it's, I mean, it's going to be a footnote in her eventual memoirs or whatever she writes, but I think, you know, you're asking why is it relevant? Well, I, I look back at our JLo episode when we talked about mm. JLo going to Turkmenistan and how, you know, she must have at least Googled what, was happening in Turkmenistan right. like she should have known when she went there that it was you know that it was uncomfortable for a lot of you know people from Turkmenistan who live outside of it or people in Turkmenistan that she was like aiding and abetting this dictator and I think it's kind of the same behavior that Naomi showed in this event where you know she's at this dinner with Charles Taylor she claims she doesn't know who he is you know, but other people at the dinner didn't know who he was. Apparently, yeah. um, like even uh, Grassa Michelle, who later became Nelson Mandela's wife, like she was kind of upset that Charles Taylor was at the dinner. Yeah, I and think she, she had pulled she her aside. Yeah, yes. I think she actually pulled her aside and said, like, or pulled some people aside um, and said, you know, steer clear of that guy. Right. So exactly. people knew who he was. 
so I mean, I guess is it just did she think maybe these are just dirty stones? These are these are uncut gems. Um, and maybe they're not important. Maybe, I mean, there's also a, a reality in which she didn't know the backstory. Of right. Where to these your point, like she from. couldn't she couldn't have pulled out her iPhone and Googled him, right? Like that was it's 1997. So I can imagine in 1997 you show up to a dinner party and you don't know who's sitting next to you and you just do some flight flirting and it turns out, you know. I guess this would only happen if you were a supermodel. You go to a dinner party at Nelson Mandela's house, do some like flirting and find out he's a dictator or like a war criminal or whatever. But I think that she had to have known, she had to have known something. I, I don't quite buy it. It's also worth noting though, she, her plan was always to donate them. Like literally the next day oh, yeah. she handed them over to Jeremy Ratcliffe of the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund and wanted them to be given for charity and he actually handed them to the police uh after the fact um i don't know what the timeline on handing them to the police what those were but you know they they ended up back with she clearly uh, never meant to keep them and try and cut she them never meant and, to keep them, them as, diamond, as diamonds yeah i mean we would love to hear you know if there's someone in our audience who cares about this time in history or you know thinks a lot about naomi you know reach out to us like send us a dm or a text if you have our numbers because uh, this is a really interesting conversation for us the final note on this whole thing is that charles taylor was eventually sentenced in april 2012 um he was charged of he was found guilty of all 11 charges uh including terror murder and rape and he was sentenced to 50 years in prison and he is still there He's actually one of the few war criminals that have managed to be charged yeah. and arrested and jailed. And one day we'll do an episode on why so many of them happen to be African and not American. But mm. that's for another day. That's that's a huge content, uh, contentious issue about how right. like, all these international criminal courts are very focused on African war criminals. But there are people in the U.S. who who have committed uh, war crimes, war crimes. who have never been prosecuted and you know what that means like who gets to set the rules where does international law who where does international law favor etc 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 but yes that is that is the end of the episode names that How is Naomi feeling? Campbell at the Hague and in fact if you read if I'm sure you all have our little podcast description memorized it's one of the first examples we thought of when we were considering the kinds of stories we wanted to tell in this podcast is what if your favorite supermodel, you know, had to testify at the Hague or something we said to that effect. <laughs> wow. That is true. Look at us keeping up with our episode description. Well done us. us. Yes. Well done us. This, I mean, this podcast might just evolve into just talking about pop star, but sometimes we make it back to the actual topics that we need to discuss. At some point we will circle back to our original point. Exactly. So as we've mentioned, we are in fact going on a hiatus. This is not one of those like, we're never coming back hiatuses. We are committed to returning to all of you. We are just taking a couple of weeks off. So we'll be back around mid-October and we are really excited to take a little bit of a step back uh, and do a lot of research on our next episodes. We've already started thinking about the things we wanna talk about when we're back. So you know, fret not, we shall return. Um, we will continue to be active on our social media accounts. So please continue to DM us. We'll continue to engage with you. We would love to hear other episode ideas that you might have for us when we're back. We're always really yes. open to that. Yeah, it's always, it's fun for us to hear what you guys are interested in. I promise we'll do a Gwen Stefani, Gwen Stefani, Gwyneth Paltrow. We, we, can do we a should Gwen do a Gwen Stefani episode. episode. <laughs> 
Do you remember the Harajuku girls? Does anyone remember that yes, whole phase where she like course. went to Japan for a bit and came back and was like, spiritually, I'm Japanese. And everyone was like, yeah. you're not. <laughs> okay, yeah. So Gwen Savani, Gwyneth Paltrow episodes, they're coming up. <laughs> but please continue to keep up with us. If you haven't heard our past episodes, now is a great time to catch up. Now is a great Share time to tell your friends your to catch up. Yes. We're t- like, we're PG-13 too. This is we a are. show you can listen to your mom, your dad, your dog. Yeah. Come on. We intentionally make this a family-friendly show. Uh, so please. It's mostly me cutting out all of Miriam's vulgarity. Listen, <laughs> I'm a classy, I'm a classy girl. She says wearing leopard, leopard, leopard skin 8 shirt yes. at 8 a.m. Um, and you can remember that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Kind of Funny Pod. You can also rate, review, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening for the last couple of weeks. This has been 12 episodes of just joy joy for us. Yeah, we've enjoyed it so much. I'm going to miss you. What am I going to do with my Sundays, Miriam? For a couple of weeks. All the time. I mean, we're in like 10 group texts together. So yes. (laughs) This is true. I think we'll be all right. But (laughs) we'll be fine. We will will miss uh, performing our friendship for all of you. That's that's what's happening. That's a good way to put it. Okay, everyone. I guess we'll see you soon. Talk to you soon.